This week we're going to be talking about what is God like. And what I wanted to start with is a psalm to help us prepare and enter into his presence. So this will not just be a theological discussion about God, but that we would experience his presence in this room. So I wanted to read to you literally what I read this morning in my quiet time, which was Psalm 27. And I believe this psalm fits us so well right now with what is happening in the world with war, the fear of wondering, will America have to deal with war in our own country? But it will also help us to think about what are we supposed to be daily focusing on and desiring? So let me just read to you just a portion of Psalm 27. It says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deployed against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, I will still be confident. How? Look at verse 4. I have asked one thing from the Lord. One thing I desire. It wasn't his safety. It wasn't the focus of his physical life. It was this to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Not that I will be in heaven if I die, but now in the days of my life, however long my life is, it's to dwell in the house, in the presence of the Lord all the days of my life. And it says gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. And I am hoping today as we study what is God like, we will see and gaze on the beauty of the Lord, that the things of the world will pass away and we will say what verse four says, I am asking of one thing from the Lord and that my one true desire is to dwell with him. In verse 8, he says, My heart says this about you. Seek his face. Lord, I will seek your face. And as he sought God's face, despite all the conflict around him, his closing statements in verses 13 and 14, it says, I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Not just goodness for eternity, but there is the Lord's goodness in the land of the living right now. And so he closes with, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. He bookends it. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, courageous. Let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. This is a time where our focus, the one thing we need to desire is God's presence and that we need to desire to be patient and wait for the Lord because he is sovereign and he is in control. 
And so I pray that this psalm will lead us into a heart of worship as we learn more about who God is this morning. So let me begin with some prayer. Heavenly Father, your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. And you are way greater, way magnificent, more than we can imagine or think. I remember reading a book that said, our God is too small. We think of you too smallly. May today you open up our hearts and our minds to understand how incredibly magnificent you are. And may it lead us to worship you, to desire you, to wait on you, to trust in you, and to have your eternal peace, no matter the circumstances around us. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as we focus on who is God, what is God like? How do we get this information, first of all? Okay, we have to realize that God is the highest source of information about himself. Only God can tell us who he is, is what I'm saying. If there was a higher source of information about God, then God wouldn't be God, right? God wants the people he created to know him intimately and to glorify him. And how we do that is by reflecting on his attributes of who he is. Now, as we go through these attributes today, I want us not just to learn about what God is like, but I want us to evaluate how are we doing at reflecting who he is to the world around us? Because we were made in the image of God. We are not little gods, but he has asked us to reflect his character to the world. And some of his character is beyond us, but some of his character we should be emulating. So first of all, God exists. Every person in the world has an inner sense that God exists. There really is no true atheist in the world. Do you remember, when was the first time you sensed God's existence? Do any of you remember? Do you have an example of when you sensed God's existence in your life? Every created thing gives evidence of God in his character. Every created thing he created gives evidence of God in his character. Now, there are three arguments that we can know that God exists. So this is going to help you get into some some theology. The first one's called the cosmological argument. And this considers the fact that every known thing in the universe actually has a cause. Everything in the universe has a cause. Not only that, but the universe, if if everything in the universe has a cause, then the universe itself must have a purpose, okay? And so it shows if each thing has a purpose, then the whole universe must have a purpose. The second one is called the teleological argument. And this focuses on how there is harmony, design, and order in the universe, It's just amazing to watch the eco-cycles, right? Or how animals live and different things that show us that there is a design that gives evidence to an intelligent purpose and that there's got to be a creator. And then finally, there is the moral argument. And it begins with a person's sense of right and wrong and their need for justice. 
We are people that want justice. And so there must be a just God who will grant justice to all people. And we can see that even in little kids, even in toddlers who cannot articulate what they did wrong or why they did wrong, they know. <laughs> Those toddlers are not innocent. They know when they do something wrong because they look to see if you noticed, right? Yes. And so there is a moral argument even put within little children. Why doesn't everyone believe in God then? Well, if we have the evidence of the universe and that there's purpose and design and a moral conviction of things, well, we need to understand that God must enable us to be persuaded. We need to be persuaded by God. He needs to open up our hearts and minds to these obvious things around us or we will never believe in him. We believe in God not with blind faith. Our faith is not blind, but it is based on evidence in the natural world and who he says he is in the Bible. We can know for certain things about God there are certain things we can surely know, but we cannot know everything about God. But the important thing is he is a God that can be known personally. In Jeremiah 9, 24, it says, Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. We can understand God to a degree, and we can know him. So what are some things that are important to understand about God? When you think about what is important for you to understand about God, what are some of those things? People need to know God is love. That is in 1 John 4, 8. That God is light, 1 John 1, 5. He takes away the darkness. God is spirit, John 4, 24. God is righteous. He is right. Romans 3, 26. But do you think that most people today believe in God's existence? Why or why not? Do you believe that most people today believe in the existence of God? So when I was in China, they are raised to be atheists. They are raised, there is no God. The God is the government. But every time I'd sit down with someone, I would say, well, if there was a higher power, what would you hope that po higher power is like? What attributes would you want this higher power to have? And every time they would state attributes that are true of God without knowing a Bible, without hearing a sermon, being raised in an atheist country. And I would be able to say, what if those attributes were true about a true God? Would you want to get to know him? And they'd say yes. And then I would have the opportunity to share about who Jesus was in the gospel. So we know that even in places where the gospel is completely oppressed, that people can believe that there is a God and they already know some of his attributes. It's just in them. It is in them. I mean, that experience of two years in China proved it to me. And so we know that it is in every person you're around that might even be rebellious against God. They know some of God's attributes in them. So let's start talking about some of these attributes. The first one is God is knowable. Now, he must reveal himself to us. It says that in Romans 1, 19. And we will never fully understand God, but we should not say that God is not able to be understood. 
We might never fully understand every single thing, but, and we will continue to always learn about him for all of eternity. Isn't that amazing? We will be in heaven with him and still continue to learn about him for all of eternity. And the reason is because we are finite and he is infinite. He is eternal. And so even though we can't know God exhaustively, we can still know true things about God. We can still say we know him. And not just facts about him or actions about him, but we can actually personally know him. So how does the fact that God is incomprehensible and yet knowable help us to make heaven more exciting? How does knowing that he can be more knowable make heaven more exciting? It's kind of the opposite of sometimes how a marriage can be where you get married and then you have some surprises about your spouse, right? And those surprises aren't always like that. That was a wonderful thing I never knew about you, right? It's kind of like, oh, I'm realizing we're both sinners, (laughs) you know? And this is for life or should be, or we're going to try to make it be, right? But with God, we have this relationship that will always be getting better and better and more intimate and more noble for all, all of eternity. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. And we should think about being excited about heaven because we're going to get to know this person that we already know and love so much better. Okay, so we're going to talk about two type of attributes that God has. He has what's called incommunicable attributes and communicable attributes. So what do these big words mean? An incommunicable attribute of God means it's an attribute he does not share with us as humans. It is an attribute only God has that we do not have. For example, he is eternal, he is omnipresent, he's present everywhere, and he is unchangeable. And hopefully we keep changing, right? So these are not shared with us. But communicable attributes are attributes of God that he does share with us to some degree. For example, we are to love. We can gain knowledge, we can give mercy, and we can execute justice. These are all attributes of God that he has allowed us in his image to represent as well to the world. They're not completely exactly the same, right? Like we are not going to condemn someone to hell and God in his justice and judgment will be able to do that. But we can bring justice on earth and he asks us to do that. There's no attribute of God that is either completely communicable or completely incommunicable. It just ebbs and flows. The names of God in scripture help us to learn about his character. So as you study the names of God, start thinking about what does this teach me about God's character? So scripture uses anthropomorphic language, which means it's describing God in a way we can understand by saying he has a hand to hold us, right? Or eyes to see us. Or sometimes it's it's like an animal, right? Like the lamb of God. And so they use this language to help us try to grasp who God is, but that does not mean God physically has a hand or an eye or looks like a lamb, right? So we want to be careful that we don't just assume who God is by this language that's poetically displaying and trying to help us understand God. God is independent. Boy, 
Too bad that's not one of our attributes. <laughs> we want to be independent, right? But God is truly independent. And what that means is he actually doesn't need anything. He is independent in and of himself. He does not need creation or us or anything else. And he is perfectly happy with his very own existence. It sounds a little self-centered, but he's God. So he is allowed to be perfectly happy and fulfilled in his own existence. And we, as his creation, actually bring him joy. He has joy with us. Acts 17.25 says, As though God needed anything. God does not need anything. But we are the exact opposite. We are dependent on him for everything, including the air that we breathe, including the day that we die. He knows the exact number of our days. Romans eleven thirty six says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. God exists and his character is determined by himself alone. And he's not dependent on anyone or anything else. And so God is independent because he was not created. We are dependent because we were created. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I mean, try to wrap your mind around everlasting to everlasting. I cannot comprehend it. Now, this is an important one to understand. It says that God is unchangeable. And the other word for unchangeable in theology is God is immutable. Immutable means God does not change. But what does that mean? It literally means that his character cannot change. It does not mean, as you start to read the scripture, that whoa, it looked like he changed his mind. It looks like he went a different course than he said previously. That does not mean God changed. His character never changes. Okay, so we're going to look at how this is different. Malachi 3, 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Right? It says he is the same what? Yesterday, today, and forever. So he is unchangeable in his being, attributes, his purposes never change, and his promises never change. But God does act and he feels emotions. God has emotions and he acts and feels differently and responds differently in different situations. This is why he is a relational God. So when we say he can't change in his being, we are emphasizing his character. And it also means God cannot be changed or harmed by anything outside himself. Satan can't harm him. The demons can't harm him. We can't harm him. He cannot be changed by anyone else. So the question is, is, well, sometimes it seems like in the Bible he changed. He changed his mind. Think about this. Moses had these grumbling Israelites. And God said to him, I am going to wipe out all the Israelites and give you new people to lead. Now, let me tell you, when I was in leadership... I was so dumbfounded and humbled by Moses' response because these people wanted to kill him. They hated him. They wanted to go back to Egypt. And he said, no, God, have grace on them. Let your name be glorified. Don't obliterate them. And I thought, you know, I have had people under me. I would have been like, just get rid of them, you know? I just never had Moses' character when I was in higher level leadership. But what was amazing is as Moses prayed, and pleaded, God allowed the circumstance to change and he did not obliterate the Israelites. Another example, 
was Jonah. He told Jonah to go to the Ninevites and tell them that I'm going to destroy them. But what changed? They repented. They turned. And because of their repentant heart, God did not destroy them. Now, he didn't have the greatest character. He kind of complained about that. He really wanted the justice to be that, that they were destroyed. So we see that when we pray, when we repent, when our hearts are humbled before God, he emotionally connects with us. And what he might have said will happen, he then will, will allow a different circumstance. But his character never changed because he is a loving God and he is a merciful God. And if we repent and ask for forgiveness, the consequences will change, right? And so that is how we can understand God does not change. But in the Bible, we see how it might seem like the circumstance was changed or it looks like he changed his mind. But it was because of the repentance of the people. So what would happen, though, if God could change? Okay. What would happen? Think of it this way. Either he would be changing for the better or the worse, right? If God could change, it's either for better or worse. So if he changed for the better, then that would mean he wasn't the best possible being when we first trusted in him. He wasn't the best thing ever. And if he could change for the worst in his very being, then what kind of God could he become? That would be scary and frightful. And how could we ever trust a God that could change? But because he doesn't change, that gives us great trust in who he is. Next, God is eternal and infinite. No beginning or end. And here's something maybe you haven't thought of. There is no succession of events in his being. Because he's eternal, he's outside of time. So his life, or I mean not life, but his being, does not have a succession of events. Jude 25 says, Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority were God's before all time. Before all time, as well as now and forever. He is not subject to any of the limitations of humanity or of creation in general. And that is why miracles can happen because he is outside of that. To be infinite is to be unlimited. Time does not change God, and he never learns new things. He does not learn new things. Because God is outside time, remember he created time, his view of time is radically different than ours. Think about this. You might have heard this verse in 2 Peter 3.8. A thousand years is like a day. And a day is like a thousand years. It's because he's outside of time. Not only is he outside of time, but think of this. God views the whole span of history as vividly as if it was this brief event right now. The whole span of history is as clear and as vibrant as if it's happening right now. He views it the past, the present, and the future, all in one, all very clear. He's not wondering what's going to happen tomorrow. God sees events in time, and he acts in time, but yet he sees all time all at once. Whoa, that's amazing. And he can do that because he is the Lord of time. There will still be time in eternity. How do we know that? Well, Revelation 22, verse 2, says that the tree of life will yield its fruit every month, which implies that there is a regular passage of time 
and occurrence events of a time when we are in heaven. Very interesting. Next, God is omnipresent. What does that mean? It doesn't just mean that he's everywhere, which is an easy way to remember it, but he is unlimited in regards to space. That's really what it means. He is unlimited in regards to being a spatial being. He has no size. He has no spatial dimensions. He is present in every point of space with his entire whole being. I mean, that's unfathomable. He is the one that created material space so he cannot be limited within material space. Jeremiah 23, 23 says that he fills the heavens and the earth. God cannot be contained in any space, no matter how large. But we shouldn't think of God as extending infinitely far in all directions so that he himself exists in sort of an infinite, unending space. You can't think of him that way either. We need to not think of him in spatial terms. He exists without size or dimensions. He existed before space and matter. And so the biblical perspective is that God is present to everyone in his creation, but he's also distinct. He is present, but he is distinct from his creation. Even though he is everywhere, he acts in different ways in different places. For example, in hell, he will punish. In heaven, he will bless. God will manifest his presence more fully in heaven than anywhere else. We will experience him more fully in heaven than anywhere else. This is interesting. When the Bible says God is present, when he says God's presence is with you, God is present, it doesn't mean he's more present here than somewhere else. What that term means is that he is there to bless. When God is present, he is there to bless. And when you see the terms God is far away, it does not mean God's presence is far away. It means he is not present to bless. So that is the, the, the thing to understand when you're reading the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, that when God is present, he is present to bless. And when God is far away, it means he is not present to bless. But it does not mean he has less of an existence in that space. Related to his omnipresence is this. God is spirit. God the Father is spirit. John 4.24 says this. His being is not made of any matter. It has no parts or dimensions, and it's unable to be perceived by our bodily senses. It is more excellent than any other kind of existence. I can't fathom that, but he's more excellent than anything else that exists. But that doesn't mean he is the person of the Holy Spirit. So God the Father is spirit, and we have the Holy Spirit. Okay, we're going to learn more about the Trinity next week, but we know Jesus is not a spirit because it said that he would still have his human body when he's in heaven. We will see the nail-scarred hands. That part was not healed. So we will get to see that in heaven. So God the Father is spirit. God forbids his people to think of his very being as similar to anything else in physical creation. So we cannot try to explain who he is by the physical creation. His mode of existence is different from everything he's created. I hope we will better understand when we are in heaven, right? We know it says God is light. Is he, that there will not need to be a sun because heaven will be bright 
because of God's existence. I mean, even that is unfathomable. Now next, God is invisible. I mean, spirit and invisible sound similar. John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God. No one can see God's total essence or all of his spiritual being. Yet God will show himself to us partially in this age and more fully in the age to come. 1 Timothy 6.16 says, no one has ever seen or can see God. He shows us something about himself through visible created things. And when we think of God, we do use analogies, like I said, of our lives or of creation. In the Old Testament, there were what were called theophanies. A theophany is an appearance of God to a person. God appeared to Abraham, Jacob, the people of Israel in theophanies. He took on visible forms to show himself to people, right? A burning bush could be an example. But is he fire? No, God is not just fire, right? But he revealed himself in different ways. And Jesus is also a unique visible manifestation of God. He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. We know that we will see God in heaven because Matthew 5, 8 and Revelation 22, 3 tells us so. Next, God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. 1 John 3, 20 says, God knows everything. He fully knows himself as well as all actual and possible things. So he knows reality, he knows all the possibilities, and he knows all the best ways to deal with all of the possibilities. He knows everything that will happen. He knows the future. From all eternity, he has known all that would happen and all that he will do. How can that bring us hope and security? That God knows the future. He knows all that will happen and all that he will do. How does this bring us security and hope? So there are over 4,017 biblical prophecies and 2,323 of them related to free human decisions. Like people got to make a decision. And yet he knows even all future free human decisions and actions. We have free will in some things, and yet he already knows what we will decide in our free will to have created all of those prophecies ahead of time. Isn't that amazing? And so this is one of my personal favorites, which you mentioned, is God is wise. Why is that my favorite? Well, because of this. He is always choosing the best possible goals and best possible means to meet those goals. Maybe because I'm goal-oriented, I like that, and I like to be intentional, but they will always bring about the best results. When we don't know why things happen, we need to trust in the Lord Lord, and not lean on our own understanding because we do not understand what the best results are supposed to be. Maybe the best results is that so many people had to die right now in the Middle East because now so many people are thinking about the afterlife that they're actually crying out to God and there's going to be a huge revival among the Jewish, among those in the Gaza Strip. We don't know. But oftentimes when war and death comes, people rush. When 9-11 happened, I was at UC Berkeley. UC Berkeley is very liberal, very anti-God. And let me tell you, the day that tragedy hit, or maybe it was throughout that rest of the week, we got so many Bibles. We had a table full of Bibles. And I was seeing people grab Bibles like no time before because they thought, what in the world? I need God. 
So when tragedy hits, there is a plan for eternal lives to come to him. Next, God is truthful and faithful. Jeremiah 11.10 says, The Lord is the true God. All his knowledge and all his words are both true and they are the final standard of truth. We talked about that a little bit last time. Veracity, which means truthfulness or reliability, has also been used for God's truthfulness. Veracity. All that God knows and thinks is true and is a correct understanding of the nature of reality. I'm going to repeat that because that's pretty important. All that God knows and thinks is true and is a correct understanding of the nature of reality. He understands true reality. And so the standard of true knowledge is conformity to God's knowledge. When we learn what God knows, we have true knowledge. If we are thinking the same way God is about the universe, then we are thinking rightly and truthfully about it. God will always do what he has said and fulfill what he has promised, and we can affirm that all truth is God's truth. Next, God is good. Luke 18, 19 says, No one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. We need to remind ourselves of this because one of the biggest questions people ask is, why do bad things happen to good people? No, no one is good. No, not one. Why would God send that good person to hell? They were so good. No, no one is righteous. No, not one. Only God is good. And God is the ultimate standard of goodness. We do not get to determine what is good or what is good enough to be labeled as good. He is the ultimate source of goodness. James 1.17 says that every good gift is from above, from our Father of lights. All that God is and does is worthy of approval. When do you think it is hard to embrace that God is good? Even though that is true, when is it hard for us in our finite beings to believe or embrace that God is good? We need to define this. What is good? What is good? And here's the answer. Good is what God approves. What is good is what God approves. He is the source of all good in the world. God is the ultimate good that we seek. Aspects of God's goodness are this, mercy, grace, and patience. This is part of God's goodness, mercy, grace, and patience. God's mercy means God's goodness toward those that are in misery and distress. So look at that. Oh God, how could you be good? I just went through this. No, but he will give you mercy in your misery and distress. Okay? God's grace means God's goodness toward those who only deserve punishment. Oh, I have these consequences in my life because I made foolish decisions. But yet, in God's grace, I don't have to have eternal punishment. 
right? God's patience means God's goodness is, this is where it comes to the evil people. Listen to this. God's patience means God's goodness is withholding of punishment toward those who sin over a period of time so that maybe they'll get saved before they're damned to hell forever, right? Why does evil happen? Because God is actually patient with those evil people to give them a chance to repent. So next, let's focus on God's love. John 1, 4, 8 says, God is love. God eternally, and what does that mean? Because, man, the world wants to say God is love. They'll accept that part of him, right? Oh, he loves everybody, no matter what you do, no matter what. But what this means is God eternally gives of himself for the good of others. God eternally gives of himself for the good of others. And here's how. Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners. Oh, look, we're not good. <laughs> that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's love. That is love. How does our life look when we believe God loves us? And how does it look if we question his love? Answer that. How does it look if we believe God loves us? How does that affect our life? And how does it affect our life if we question God's love for us? If you believe God loves you, then you have this assurance. You have this confidence that enables you to forgive, to resolve conflict, to be okay with people's weaknesses and incompetencies, right? The next one we mentioned earlier is God is holy. Psalm 99 verse 9 says this. He is separated from sin and is devoted to seeking his own honor. It, it has a relational quality that he is so holy he needs to be separated from things that are unholy and a moral quality, right? He cannot be around sin. And we are called to be holy. He says nine times, be holy as I am holy. And so this is something we need to be pursuing very clearly in our character is becoming separated from our sin. We don't identify with our sin anymore. We are a new creation. And when we sin, we quickly repent. We ask for the Holy Spirit to empower us and help us to become more holy. Next, God is righteous and just. Now, this is interesting. In English, these two words are different, justice and righteousness. But in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, as well as in Greek, in the New Testament, there's only one word group behind those two English words. So it's one attribute of God. God is righteous slash just is one attribute because it's one word, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, all his ways are justice. He acts in accordance with what is right, for he is the final standard of what is right. So he is righteous because he is right and he is just. It's all the same. We must seek to do that which is in line with God's moral character. That's the ultimate standard of righteousness. Okay? We are to seek to be in line with God's moral character. Here is what I tell my children whenever I'm trying to teach them a moral lesson that's in the Bible. I say, followers of Jesus follow the Bible, and the Bible says this. Followers of Jesus follow the Bible, and the Bible says this. There is something about how can you be a follower of Jesus and ignore the Bible. 
It is a contradiction. It says that God is jealous. Exodus 25 says that. God continually seeks to protect his own honor. It is an honor that only he deserves. So why do you think it is not wrong for God to seek his own honor? Why is he allowed to be jealous for his own honor? God is wrathful against sin. He intensely hates sin. John 3.36 says this, and this is a sobering verse. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There is something about, it's not just about believing Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but to understand it so much that you are so thankful for his sacrifice that your life changes and the desire of your heart is actually to purge out sin. You might still sin, you might still have addiction, but the heart desire is, I want to obey, I want to change, I want this out of my life. And if you see someone or in your own life have no desire to obey the son, after you have said you believe in him, you might want to question, what was that belief in? Because here it says the wrath of God remains on a person that still lives in continual disobedience. His wrath will consume those who reject Jesus and continue in their sin. So what do you think is the danger of ignoring this character trait or attribute of God? How can this also motivate us to share Jesus with others? I feel like the the Christian church in America talks too little about repentance. Repent, for forgiveness is near. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, that was so much through the Gospels. Repent, repent, repent. And we need to remember that we do continually repent. We don't lose our salvation, but to be close to God, to this holy God, you need to ask yourself, when was the last time you repented? When was the last time you actually confessed a sin to God? Is it only the last time you took communion or even then? Or is it a continual daily understanding of we need to be so right with God. We need to continually ask God to give us a heart of continual repentance. And how should this help us to want to share Jesus with others? I think we're sometimes afraid to say that God is a wrathful God and there are consequences. You know, we want to more emphasize God is love and he is. But what I've seen is if we share the gospel and only emphasize that God is love and so look, he died for you, we are downplaying the wrath of God to help them want to really really repent and and change their ways you know and so it needs to be represented both god is loving god but he also is a wrathful and just god when we share the gospel with others so that true repentance and a changed life can happen so the next three attributes are about god's purpose his will his freedom and his omnipotence so god wills this sounds silly, but God wills what he wills. Ephesians 1.11 says, he works all things according to the counsel of his own will. He counsels with his own will. God's will is the final, ultimate reason for everything that happens. Sometimes it's God's will that Christians suffer. Revelation 4 says, all things were created by God's will. All the events in our lives are subject to God's will. Yet, 
God is not blamed for the sinful or evil things that happen. The exact relationship between his will and evil is not something he has chosen to completely reveal to us. It's a mystery. And we talked about that earlier. Why did bad things happen, right? Why does evil things happen to children? This still remains a mystery. So there is God's necessary will and God's free will. What is necessary will and God's free will? God's necessary will includes everything that he must will to happen because it's about his own nature. It's necessary because that's who God is. Justice has to happen because that's God's attribute. So his will is justice will happen because I am a just God. Okay. But God's free will includes all things that God decided to will, but it's not really according to his nature. He's allowing something to happen, but it has nothing to do with any of his attributes. It was his free choice, for example, to create us, and it was his free choice to redeem us. Those things are outside of necessarily the character. He just decided to create us, and he decided to redeem us. Now, there's also God's secret will and his revealed will. God's revealed will contains his commands for our moral conduct. This is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to become. This is how I want you to think, okay? But God's declared will concerns what we should do. God's secret will includes most of his hidden decrees by which he governs the universe. We don't understand how he governs the universe or determines everything that happens. So we just have to say, hey, what's happening right now overseas is in God's secret will. We don't fully understand it. And that's okay. He's allowed to have a secret will and he's allowed to have a revealed will, which we read in the Bible. And so to be okay that he is allowed to make those decisions. Next, God has freedom. Psalm 115.3 says he does all that he pleases. He is completely free to do whatever he wants to do within his character. Nothing can hinder him from doing his will. He's not constrained by anything external to himself. Although our will is not absolutely free in the way God's is, God has given us relative freedom within our spheres of activity in the universe he's created. So we have relative free will, if you want to put it that way. (laughs) Next, God is omnipotent, which means all-powerful. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Nothing is too hard for you, O God. He is all-powerful, and his power is infinite. There is no end to his power. It doesn't exactly mean, though, that God can do anything. That's tricky. Remember, sometimes you ask the trick question, can God do anything? Yes or no? Well, he cannot do anything because there are certain things that would be against his character. Okay? God cannot lie. God cannot be tempted with evil. Those are two examples. So God cannot just do anything unless, especially if it's outside of his own character. He has the power to accomplish whatever he wills within his character. God has power over his creation, and that is called his sovereignty. So if you hear the word sovereignty, it's related to his all-powerful omnipotence. He is sovereign, he is all-powerful, he is omnipotent. Those mean pretty much the same thing. God is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. God fully purposes all excellent qualities and he lacks no part of any quality that's desirable for him. 
Everything about him is desirable. Everything about him is perfect. God is blessed. This means he fully delights in himself and in all that reflects his character. Complete fullness of joy is found in him. God is beautiful. Psalm 27, 4, God's beauty is the sum of all desirable qualities. Beauty means that God has everything desirable. What makes us beautiful? Is it our hair products? Is it our creams we put on our faces? Is it the places we go to get our nails done? No, right? It is our character. Let's emulate the beauty of God in our character. Second to last one, God is peace or God is order. God is not chaos. This means that God, in God's being and in his actions, he is separated from all confusion and disorder. He does not create confusion. He does not create disorder. Though it seemed like that at the Tower of Babel, right? It says that they confused their languages. But he even had an order and purpose for that, didn't he? So that they would not build that tower and try to reach heaven on their own. And so we see that he is continually active in innumerable, well-ordered, fully controlled, simultaneous actions. He is in control in Israel. He is in control in the Gaza Strip. He is in control in Iran. He is in control, where else? Lebanon. He is in control here, right? He is in control. Finally, God is a unity. He is unity. He is unified in all of his attributes. What this means is he's not more of one attribute than another attribute. He's not more love and less justice, more love and less wrathful. He's not just a little. He's not more truth and less grace. It said Jesus was fully, full of grace and full of truth at the same time. There is unity and equality in all of his character traits. Yet we see different attributes of God emphasized at different times. You need to be careful to not think God is a wrathful God in the Old Testament and a gracious God in the New Testament. He is both in both the Old and the New. No single attribute is more important than the rest. We have to be careful. We can't say, oh, but the love of God is the most important attribute. Because let me tell you, he wouldn't be God without his holiness. Right? And so you cannot put one attribute above the other. So in light of this, shouldn't we give God glory? It means to give him honor for his excellent reputation. God's glory also means that Created brightness surrounds God. They often say the glory is actually the light of God. The glory of God is the visible manifestation of the excellence of his character. And so I want us to close our time by reading this list that starts off declaring, in a sense, a prayer of who God is and then declaring who God is to us. And I think this is a great reminder and a great exercise so we could then again be in the presence of the throne room of God like we started in Psalm 27. It says this, Father, you are the almighty God. You are the creator of all things. You are a consuming 
fire. You are the beginning and the end. You are in control of all things. You are the Lord of lords and the King of kings. You are the mighty Lion of Judah. You are the Prince of Peace. You sit on the throne. You are the keeper of our souls. You are the name above every other name. You are all-knowing. You are unchanging. You are eternal. You are Abba, Father. You are the bread of life. You are our Redeemer. You are the living God. You are our blessed hope. You are our morning star. You are the Alpha and the Omega. And then this is who God is to us. Father, you are my everything. You are my good shepherd. You are my God who never leaves my side. You are my closest friend and the keeper of my soul. You are my greatest companion. You have walked with me through the valley. You have lifted me up and given me a place to stand. You have given me a new heart. You have given me a new song to sing. You have given me hope when I had none. You drew me out from the darkness and into your light. You have been my faithful friend. You are my safe place to rest. You are my refuge from a world filled with chaos. You are my dwelling place. You are my unchanging foundation. You are my protector. You are my shield and my high tower. You are my Savior and my Lord. You are my God. You are my King. You are my Father. You are mine and I am yours. I love you. Amen. Oh Lord, we praise you. We praise you for all of who you are, what we can learn about you and what we cannot fathom in the mysteries of your being. Lord, may this time together help us to worship you more. Help us to pursue holiness more. Help us to pursue repentance more. Help us to remember to share Jesus with others because there are people without hope that will experience true justice and the wrath of God if they don't repent and come to you. The one that loved them so much, you died for every sinner. So Lord, give us bigger hearts for the lost and give us bigger hearts to worship you so that we would walk in a desire to obey and glorify you with our life. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen.